Welcome to season four of the Disciples Made podcast, six trends that are the least likely yet most necessary trends we must see in disciple making over the next 10 years. My name is Brian Phipps, the founder of Disciples Made, and I'll be your host for this season. The topics we're going to discuss over the coming weeks are critical. Most of them keep me awake at night on occasion. They certainly help fuel my passion towards making disciples because I believe a rich and abiding relationship with Jesus is the only means to actually see these trends come to life. That's why we're asking some of the world's most effective disciple makers to join in on the conversation. Well, as I started to put this podcast together, I realized that we needed to add another component. We at Disciples Made need to take what we hear in these conversations and have a what now conversation ourselves. We've decided to let you in on those. We'll record them, then share them with you at the appropriate time. And here's why. We hope you'll do something similar. It isn't enough to simply hear about these things. It's critical to hear and then pray and discern in order to do something with them. And it's our hope that you'll tune in to the entire season with your team, if you have one, and that you will use the information that you learn to shape your disciple-making efforts to help bring these trends into a reality. Well, with that said, let's jump in to the first conversation, the first trend that we want to see, and that is fully alive becoming greater than surface-level moralism. When I think of surface-level moralism, I think about the Pharisees and the regular conflict that Jesus had with them. And the biggest challenge that Jesus had for Pharisees is that they had a conformity with outward behaviors, but their heart was untouched. Jesus said things like, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks and only good trees bear good fruit. And we see that today in behavioral standards set by local congregations or denominations outward type of requirements for behavior that don't necessarily focus on what's happening on the inside. And when there isn't a change happening on the inside, it's often fueled by fear, guilt, and driven by human power, not the Holy Spirit. Galatians and Romans, two books of the New Testament written by Paul, say that outward behavior, surface-level moralism, is a false gospel, and it should be avoided at all costs. On the other hand, fully alive is a transformation that happens from the inside out that's cultivated by an abiding with Jesus. It's empowered by the Spirit. It's measured in spiritual fruit that we call character and spiritual gifts that we call calling. In the book of Galatians, it says there's no law against spiritual fruit because what's happening is happening from the inside out. The focus is experiencing the promise of Jesus in John 10, 10, where he says, I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. It's experienced an impact, both personal transformation and a multiplication through our personal calling. Let's join in to the conversation today as we talk about fully alive, becoming greater than surface level moralism. Well, man, it is so good to finally have this amazing panel together for season four of the Disciples Made podcast. We're talking about the six least likely, but most necessary trends that we need to see in disciple making. And we have six of our eight disciple makers 
who are going to participate over the course of this season. We'll have uh, Will Mancini and Shalom Lydic will be joining us for future episodes. And I uh, want to make sure you know every one of these amazing people. So we're going to start with some introductions. So uh, as we go around the room, just kind of briefly, if you will, friends, just introduce yourself, uh, your name, your ministry, and why you said yes. Like, why say yes to this thing about six least likely? Uh, Rob, you mind going first as our co-host? Yeah, you bet. Hey, I'm Rob Wagner, uh, one of the leaders of the Kansas City Underground. Really glad to be part of this conversation today. And uh, I mean, the reason I want to have this conversation is disciple making is the irreducible core task of the church. It's what Jesus has given us to do. And I think these six trends uh, matter profoundly. Uh, so I also helped you come up with them. So I'm cheating, I guess. You did not. <laughs> I know. I'm just teasing. <laughs> There's shenanigan number one. Mandy Smith, it is uh, 3.30 here in Central Time in America, but it's 6.30 a.m. tomorrow. I'm not sure how that works, but thank you for being here, especially so early. Tell us about you and your ministry. It's really good to be with you. And I'm, I'm awake at about 5.30 every morning now because the sun comes up right then and there is no way I'm sleeping in after that. Um, yeah, it's really good to be with you. I um, grew up here in Australia and have just moved back here this year, which I would not suggest in the middle of a global pandemic to make an international move. But anyway, God is good. And um, for the past 30 years or so, my husband and I have been studying and um, ministering in the UK and the US. So most recently just moved back here from Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was the lead pastor of University Christian Church for um, some time and been really involved with a lot of writing um, and speaking as well. Just love being in the spaces where these kinds of conversations are happening. So that's why I said yes to this particular conversation. And it's really life-giving for me as well as hoping that I can contribute something. Um, but I'm I've just two months ago started here at a congregation in Brisbane, Queensland called St. Lucia Uniting Church by the University of Queensland. So kind of an exciting place to be with 40,000 students from all over the world right on our doorstep. So um, that's that's me. Fantastic, Mandy. Thanks again. Kevin Harris from Atlanta. Yes. Thank you, Brian, for having me. I wish I had a cool accent, but I don't. Um, so I'm the president of an organization called Radical Mentoring. And um, I'm here because, Brian, honestly, you asked. And I don't get asked oftentimes to participate in um, conversations, what I'd say, of this magnitude with this group of uh people who have got varying degrees and backgrounds. I, um, I'm a business guy who transitioned into running nonprofit because the idea of small group mentoring changed my life, it changed my view of how disciples are made. Um, I got to sit at the feet of a guy who was a few years down the road ahead of me and who was willing to just open up his life and model for me what it was like to live um, for Jesus. And uh, there's been nothing more powerful that I've seen. And Rob said it best, Jesus did it, and he's called us to do it. And I think mentoring is a unique way to do that. So I'm just really, really honored that you'd uh, have me join you. So thanks for letting me sneak on the call. Absolutely. Absolutely, friend. Thanks for accepting. Carrie, how about you? 
Yeah, uh, Carrie Lattiser. I have the privilege of pastoring a church here just outside of Chicago land in Naperville, Illinois, and um, I'm the founder of New Ground Network. So this kind of interdenominational movement of churches, we invest in church planting and come alongside teams and churches to help them be effective at seizing their mission and vision for the church. And uh, I was thrilled when you invited me, Brian, to be a part of this conversation. I, I just care deeply about God's mission in this world. I think it is tremendous and quite remarkable that he chooses us to, you know, be the strategy for that mission to get accomplished. And uh, when I think about the redemptive potential of the future of the church, I think if we don't have these types of conversations about some of the shifts that are necessary, um, we could miss out on some of what God wants to do. So I'm just, I'm thrilled to learn alongside of you all and maybe add my two cents from time to time, but I'm really excited to be here with each of you. Uh, stoked. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Last but definitely not least, Mr. Pierce, Myron Pierce. What's happening? Um, I'm Myron Pierce and I live in beautiful Omaha, Nebraska. I lead a church uh, called Mission Church. And uh, man, our, our number one deal is to saturate every inner city with diverse hope field leaders, missionaries, churches. And um, so it's a privilege to, to be here. I'm here because you asked me, man. I have an insane heart for disciple making, and uh, I'm just thankful to be here. So thanks, man. Oh, man, my pleasure. We get the free, uh, the uh, privilege of partnering along each other on the board, Kansas City Underground. So it's, uh, it's good to connect with you regularly as we uh, share in that endeavor as well. So here's the first question I want to ask. We'll just kind of go around the room, Rob. Uh, I'll start with you. Is this a top 10 most necessary um, why or why not? I think one of the most radical aspects of Jesus, uh, his teaching, his way of life was uh, moving us beyond, you know, behavior management. And uh, he was taking his ethics uh, down to the deepest place of our being. And uh, default mode, the reason this is so important is default mode is image management. <laughs> We're mm -hmm. like an iceberg and there's this little piece of us that sticks up above the top of the water. And we spend so much time and energy on that. And we all know, um, I've seen over and over my life, how often I'm, I'm even when I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and, um, and Jesus invitation is to actually become a qualitatively different person internally. It's the best invitation we've ever received where we actually can be love hmm. be shalom um and settling for anything less um will just continue this adventure and missing the point and uh so i think that's why we have to talk about it it's so important absolutely and i think we live in a kind of functional atheism a lot of the time myself included um, speaking as if God is powerful and at the same time functioning as if he's not. And so I actually preached on this kind of concept last Sunday where we worked through the lectionary and um, the passage from James 3 and 4 really brought this to mind. And even as I was preparing the sermon about, you know, doing things in God's name but not in God's power, you know, and mm. how we need to respond differently and even as I'm preparing the sermon I'm like stressing about the sermon and and desperately trying to work to get this sermon done and and 
as I'm writing, we, we often do things in God's name, but not in God's power. I'm actually, you know, I'm actually functioning in that place myself. So absolutely. I would agree that, um, that it's something that we need to somehow figure out and not just talk about, but, um, I think the best thing that I've done that has helped me stretch in this way is to say, if I really believed these things I claim about God, how would I live? And then mm. to live in that way, even though it's really uncomfortable, um, because if we stop and wait until we get it, get our heads around it, I don't think we'll ever really get there. Oh, I love that. Kevin, uh, radical mentoring, you are certainly, uh, been in the lives of people and you can see the difference between a, an abundant life that people are living into or whether they're conforming to some type of a pattern of behavior or expectations that they've been given. What would you add to this conversation? Yeah, I'd just say to echo what everybody said so far is I think there's a culture watching us. There's a mm -hmm. generation watching us that we've, you know, I don't want to sound too smart and start talking about research, but we've seen the research that says there's a generation that's sort of turning their back on the church. And I think if you dig in there deeply, you'll just realize that there's a frustration about this idea of the high moral ground. And if you do something wrong and and it's all behavior, there's a lot of behavior in that. And I think that's why this topic is so passionate. Most men, myself included, when I walked into a mentoring group, I was just completely riddled with performance anxiety. And mm -hmm. I was trying to perform and do the right thing. And as my, you know, my background and story, which we'll, we probably will flesh out over other um, episodes, was just full of this mm -hmm. guilt, shame, repeat repeat the cycle and you know if people can understand that there's nothing they can do that can push them further away from from god that god's there he's with them he loves them um, he's for them then the life change starts to happen once you live out of that powerful truth and so i i, I could not say without more enthusiasm this is a critical topic uh, what you just said there, that anxiety, that performance anxiety, when you get together as a group is the number one thing that'll keep you from actually being vulnerable and keep you from being, you know, and if you refrain from being vulnerable, you never can hit the abundant life. And unless we have that vulnerability and experience that change, the generations that haven't left yet are soon to go. Like the critical nature of this is so astounding. So Carrie, can't wait to hear what you have to say. What would you mm -hmm. add? Yeah, um, I, I share in that burden, Brian, even just kind of the burden of the witness of the church in the West in this season. And as I, I try to trace that thread back to what has gotten us to this place, I think in a lot of ways, we have unintentionally valued information instead of transformation. So the faith tradition I came from was very much don't drink, don't cuss, don't have sex. You know, here's the list of don'ts. And really candidly, I unintentionally took on this kind of prosperity gospel of like, well, if I don't do these things, then things are going to be good. You know, that that was the unintended consequence of that message. And it wasn't until really like walking through a dark night of the soul wilderness season that I, I got kind of flipped this. And I think this is the invitation for us is when we're not trying to earn anything or, or shame people away from something, but we're inviting them to something, right? To this love that is heart transforming instead of behavior modifying. I think, I personally think this, this shift is, yes, I will say one of the top 10 we should be talking about right now, <laughs> because as 
as corporate as this might sound, what is the very invitation that we're offering in the church? Like, what is the value proposition? And it should be that there is this insane love that you cannot earn, that there's nothing you can do to be loved anymore or any less. And from that, then you're, you're compelled to want to pursue whatever behavior modification would inhibit you from experiencing life to the full in Jesus. So I, I think I just had a conversation with somebody in a different generation about this. And we were talking about theological accountability and at the core, what is sin? And I, I'm like, I want to have those same conversations, but I'm not so much trying to tell people what to stay away from as much as what I want to invite them to. And so I think this moment of, are we inviting people to salvation or to live the full gospel, right? Have we, have we unintentionally made it about crossing a line of faith instead of experiencing life to the full? I think we've got to wrestle this one out. So I'm glad to be here. I love it. What was Jesus's value prop? (laughs) He lets us know John 10, 10, man, you know, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Myron, what do you, what are you thinking over here? Well, a couple of years ago, I was on my way to becoming um, or settling for um, just being an overweight preacher, an overweight black preacher. <laughs> and uh, I found myself losing close to 100 pounds and, and now I'm in a better shape. And I, I say that because on my health journey, uh, my thought process was, this is what I can or can't eat. And that, and that's the very trajectory or journey we're on as a church. We're trying to get healthy, but we're measuring in what we can and can't do. Mm. And the, 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 the danger in that is archaic because it's the very thing that Adam and Eve dealt with. I can eat this or I can't eat that. Instead of looking at the storyline of, of God when he says, this is what you're free to do. And so I think when it comes to the world that's in desperate need of life, I think the message isn't what they can or can't do, but it's, it's freedom. And so in my, in my section, in my neck of the woods, man, listen, a different gospel, the true gospel is this is what you are free to do. Anything outside of what you're free to do becomes behavior modification which i think the entire book of galatians is a testament to say that's a false gospel we've talked about and i think we've all agreed this is a 10 most likely it might be top most likely because it really does have to do with the essence of the gospel is what i've heard all of you say um is it likely uh why or why not i mean i know i've intended for this the title of this thing to be somewhat provocative it's most important but least likely but what's in the way of this is it likely and what's in the way or what needs to happen in order for it to take place well i can't speak globally but i can speak domestically um deconstruction is is pivotal and deconstruction from um how we framed american jesus American Jesus is a affluent, superior, um, white Jesus. 
that then imposes on other aspects of life, how we treat women, how we treat those who are refugees from Haiti or from Afghanistan. And um, so anytime we framed Jesus historically over the last, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so years as this superior, soft, nice um, American Jesus, we're going, to, we're going to continue to get American Jesus and we're going to birth American followers of Jesus. Um, and, and that keeps us further from, and so I'd like to say I'm optimistic. I, I think I really am. Um, but I personally, I'm in the middle of a journey where I'm trying to reconcile where the present church is and how we become the true church that Jesus died to, 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 for us to, you know, for us to become, is it likely could be, um, I think anytime, um, God gets ready to do something, the majority, um, isn't going to go with it. There's always a remnant. And so I, I think that the remnant, um, God will raise up and is raising up to, to lead us back to that abundant life that we're talking about. Gotcha. So, um, I, what I'm hearing from you so far is uh, I, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but that deconstruction process is probably going to start with a few and take a long time. Did I, did I hear that right? Yeah, because deconstruction will cost us something. You know, and I'm not saying there are people who are who think they're deconstructing, but they're actually destroying. Those are two different concepts. Man, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to camp out here just a little bit, Myron. I'm going to come back to you. So uh, because you put out a really big topic, I think, and uh, and I and I would hope that Carrie and Kevin and Mandy and, and the rest would uh, would also pitch into this conversation a little bit if, if they have something to say. But um, if you could outline, like, what are the three major steps that a deconstruction and a reconstruction back into this might look like? If, you, if you've said something like that, you've probably given a lot of thought as to if it were to happen, these are probably the three big milestones you would look for. Or am I asking a question that's just, just too far out there? Because you raise a lot of curiosity in me, and I'm assuming also in your uh, in the listener as well rob you're saying no no i think you're asking a really important question um if i had to hit three things real quickly myron's already hit the first one we will always reflect the mental picture of god that we envision for better or for worse so if i've got a fear-based moralistic picture of god that will that will actually affect the structure of my heart and my being we're always going to be responding to the image of God that hangs in the hall of our heart. And it's, and only Jesus can actually heal it. Um, second thing I'd hit is then it's uh, self-identity <laughs> because when I know who God is, I can know who I am. I'm mm -hmm. actually living out of my belovedness. And then the third thing where we get sideways is how we actually practice the way of Jesus. Like if I'm doing this to abide and to be, living aware of his presence and I'm practicing spiritual disciplines with that end in mind. That's one way. Another way of doing the spiritual disciplines is like the Olympics, you know, and I'm like keeping score and keeping track. So I think like if I did three big categories, it'd be like image of God, self-identity and the way we practice the way of Jesus. How do we, what, what's kind of our 
soul frame and mind frame for the spiritual disciplines. Yes, I'm so glad that we're going here on this. And maybe you can tell I'm a preacher, but when you said those three, I just, I had three R's, you know, come to mind. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do. Do they rhyme? Please. Do they all rhyme? I got repentance. I got reimagine and I got reorient. Okay. So, Mm. but I want to unpack them because I'm so glad that Myron said this. And like, this is the stuff I lose sleep at night on, right? Like, how did we get to this place? What's the thread? What's the historical context? How has colonization impacted how we do church? Like, what is the faith that I have had imported? And I do think there's repentance that has to happen for this change to happen. I think to acknowledge, you know, in in church history class in seminary, I learned that when we, when we imported a faith to this land, there were Christians that were trying to justify slavery and our actual faith got um, way more individualized over the communal faith that we see in the early church. And that was one of the reasons was because Christians were trying to figure out, can I own slaves or not? So that it became about behavior modification and me and God, not necessarily heart transformation and me in this community, right? So there's some repentance that I think has to happen, even just historically to how we've gotten to this place. And then I think we have to reimagine what, what is the purpose of all of this again? What, what is the church and what is this faith tradition that I want to take from the, the Old Testament and the New Testament? You know, what, what was God's original mission, through, even through the Hebrew people? He wanted to redeem the nations through them. He wanted them to be a light, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, a priesthood of believers. And so God's mission, even then, if you look throughout the Old Testament, was to transform their hearts. He wanted to give them a new heart and a new way to be. And so there's a reorientation, I think, that might take us back to the basics, but back to God's mission for the world and how are we in the church, the strategy for fulfilling that mission now. And then I think there has to be a reorientation to that. I I come out of the growth church movement. And so I can tell you all of the good intentions behind reaching people and making the gospel accessible and wanting to do anything short of sin to reach people far from God. But then we, we left them there. And I think reorienting around this invitation to life to the full, no longer are we going to have to shame people away from sin. I think to Myron's point, we're inviting people to freedom. And when you do that, like when you have tasted the goodness of God and experienced the presence of the spirit, you want more of that. You know, you're, you're going to pursue that instead of running from something we can reorient to running to something. So if we could just simply repent and reimagine and reorient, I think there's hope. I know I say that in jest. I know that's- I love it. It might There might be 2,700 sermons with those three R's coming out in the next three weeks after this Thank you for letting me preach one. <laughs> Way to go, Carrie. Mandy, how about you? Yeah, I love your question about what are the three steps. And at the same time, I think we need to be really careful because the kind of powerful, comfortable, um, getting stuff done kind of people that we're talking about are the people who want three steps before they start something. And and what I would be curious to know is what are the stages that God, like we will not be in control if we're doing this right we will not be very good at it. (laughs) And we may not know all three steps before we start. It's a matter of releasing to what God is doing in us. And I think that folks on the margins are our models and, um, and have had to confront their 
their limitations, their lack of power, the, um, you know, without romanticizing being marginalized, the folks who are refugees right now around the world uh, have some stark choices that are really sacred moments that most of us don't have. And I think that many of us are, I often imagine us like we're doggy paddling at the top of a waterfall and we're exhausted just trying to keep ourselves from going over the waterfall. And oftentimes God is in the waterfall. Like there is something in the disruption, in the loss of power, in the pressing into the, what feels like darkness and despair that brings us out on the other side. And so Richard Raw says every kind of transformation goes order, disorder, reorder. And we we love the reorder, we love the transformation and we want to go from order to reorder. But to step to let ourselves go into the the disorder feels like a loss of God. It doesn't feel like we're in control and 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 I think we're all experiencing that at this moment. You know, in many ways, we are experiencing just a tiny snippet of what it feels like to be someone in poverty or someone who's marginalized because of their their race or their gender or someone who is um, experiencing mental health or physical health disabilities. We all, with coronavirus, have suddenly had some power taken away from us that we didn't even realize we had before. And um, I see this happening around the world that it it forces a choice in us. And I see some people responding to it in a really healthy way. Some people still fighting, still, uh, still hoping that maybe they can get grasp at that power again. And it makes, it makes for really ugly, violent behavior. And so um, when you say, is this likely, I, I pray that it is, I pray that we steward this moment well, and that we as we're confronted with the fact that we cannot overcome this virus and we cannot fix all the ways it's affecting our families, our economy, our, our travel, everything. Um, I pray that we each have a moment to, to confront that. I mean, that humanity, really that, Hmm. that powerlessness that all humans experience. Some of us are just fortunate and privileged enough to not have to confront it very often. Some people live in that from the moment they're born. And this is a moment for us to, to say, will I desperately still try to be God? Will I do everything in my power to try to just fix that horrible feeling that I am small? Or will I turn, as the Psalms do over and over again, turn from a place of I feel lost to crying out to the one who holds all things and find ourselves held, even if it doesn't fix the problem immediately. The problem is actually not coronavirus. The problem is actually that we are trying desperately to be enough in ourselves. And, and we will find a solution to that problem if we just turn. Like that can be solved in two seconds when we just go back to the Father and say, I need you. I, I am not, I've come to the end of myself and I need to reach out to something beyond myself. And so I think that it is possible if we make the choice to stop scrambling in our own desperate effort, efforts to, to fix and control and understand. And we have a wonderful, beautiful, sacred opportunity right now. And I just pray that we, that we use it. So the theme that I'm hearing evolve in this, uh, in the answer to this particular question uh, is a theme of, well, if we want to see it, then there's going to have to be kind of a Philippians 2 attitude at a universal level. Uh, Jesus, who was God, did not hold on to 
all the components of godliness, but emptied himself and became one of us. It chose to enter into that chaos, so to speak, or that disequilibrium, whatever word you want to use, dark night of the soul, intentionally in order to invite uh, a new way. Kevin, we haven't given you a shot at answering this, and you've heard an awful lot. What do you have to add to this? Um, I'm a total lightweight. I didn't. I mean, you use the word deconstruction. I'm like, oh, oh, Google, Siri, what is deconstruction? Oh no, um, <laughs> I've never been to a seminary class. Ah, I'm panicked over here. No, I, I mean, I love everything that everybody's saying, and I just think if I if I kind of take my narrow my narrow frame, and I think it is understanding who God is and understanding who we are in light of who God is. And if I think of the the men and women who share stories in these in the groups that we get to sort of facilitate all across the country, that's just the, you know, the core issue is if God is who he says he is, then I don't have to perform in any way to put myself in his good graces. I'm in his good graces. And I can, if I can live out of that, then you reach the people in the margins. You understand how you're kind of reaching into these areas that may be uncomfortable and maybe um, you have to reorient yourself to them, but it is living out of the, that truth. Uh, I think is just really the, to me, that's the, the, in, in its simplest form, we've got to get that part right. And we've got to strip ourselves away of some of the performance, the per performance narrative that's been laid down in front of us, the comparison trap that we get to see in everybody else's social media feeds all day long. This idea that we're never good enough. We don't have it together enough. Rob's got it better than I do because of, you know, whatever the position is he is or wherever he's posted a picture from. And all that stuff just gets in the way of, of the simple truth of, of who God is and who God says I am. Yeah, I'm going to summarize that best I know how. Uh, leave a rat race to go join Jesus in the greatest mission of redemption ever. <laughs> yeah. so, somebody uh, once, I heard a quote, somebody said, um, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Yep. Yeah. Congratulations. You've, you're the, you know, you've, you've done it. You won the rat race, but guess what? You're just like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to put it that way and that crassly because we're asking is it least likely and we're all kind of saying based upon these kind of standards, like deny yourself uh, and all these other things, it's not sounding extraordinarily likely that the trend will happen. So I wanted to put a, I would rather live in a rat race my life and die at the end with regret than live in the intentional invited chaos that's before me as an opportunity and lay my head down at the end of my life with, with deep satisfaction, knowing I joined Jesus in the hours I had. So Myron, what in the world is going on there in Omaha to help try to make this trend become reality? Well, I changed my job description, number one, that's practical. Um, some people prepare 20 hour sermons I'm lucky to prepare a 15-minute sermon, um, joking a little bit, but I, I flipped my schedule. I don't, like, my job isn't to be a professional pastor. Somebody call me, they need me to come to the hospital, I'm not going to answer the phone. You need, me to do a, you need me to do a funeral? Probably not likely. Oh, you want me to do a wedding? Somebody else got to do it. 
And so I've kind of pushed back on the traditional, typical, this is what it means to be a pastor. I really don't, I really don't prepare sermons anymore. I was with a group in California, a couple of us, and I, I told these pastors, I'm like, man, what if you flipped your time where you're preparing sermons and actually started making disciples? What would that do with, what would that do with your church and how would it change? And so I started doing that, man, a couple of years ago. I just started spending more time because uh, I'm a street cat, you know, so like being in the street, hanging with cats, the, 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 the margins, as, as my friend Mandy would put it, and just spending time with people making disciples. So I think for us, for me, for my team, we just said, man, we're going to, with our, with our best energy and our best time, we're going to invest in people. Now we've put systems around that. And one of the things we've had to do is for our church and to help us, number one, see that uh, disciple means something, disciple making means something, and to be the church means something. And what does the scripture advocate for? And what does the historical narrative of the gospel point to? And we've landed on saying, hey, man, like for us, a disciple or a disciple maker is a hope dealer. If you look all throughout the scripture from Genesis to Re Revelation, the message is about hope. Jesus is the hope of the world. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Now, these three, now these three things remain faith hope, love. And so hope hung between two thieves. And so we've said a disciple is a, is a hope dealer. And for us to hope deal means that God's called us to lead people into a hope filled life in Christ. And so when people see my life as a hope dealer, they should see five things. They should see that I'm missional. They should see that I have a clear understanding of the scriptures. They should, and not from a scholarly um, you know, level, but, but from a simple biblical understanding of what the scriptures and how the speaks, the scriptures speak to us. A hope dealer should be able to hear the voice of God. A hope dealer should be obey, should be able to obey the voice of God. And a hope dealer should be able to care for other people. And so we've built everything around that. So when I'm sitting down with somebody and, and I'm doing life with somebody, I'm always looking to speak to what that means for us and to lead people into that and um it's changed the way we do everything man like we went from we went from our gatherings on sunday we went from rows to circles we meet around tables i no longer say that i'm preaching a sermon no i'm sharing from god's word we're not worshiping god on sunday no we're singing some songs Right. Because and that's some of the deconstruction that we're making as as just a family. We're not just a church. We're the family. Right. God's not in the or God's not into organizational charts. He's into family trees. And, uh, and so those are just the things that we're doing. Mm. And, and, and we're seeing people make disciples, man. And people are being called into their particular mission field. And I love it. Yeah. I love what you're doing, Myron. I hear so many people, and, and Rob, you do too, as we kind of labor on behalf of Disciples Made and talk to people about kind of the ways we've been making disciples. And we've heard it said in so many ways, and, uh, and they don't like to hear themselves say it, but they say, I don't really have time to make disciples. I've got I'm too busy running the church 
preparing for the weekend services, doing all the things, the 20 hours for preaching and the hospital visits. And, and nothing against sermons, man. Nothing against sermons. Right. Praise yeah. God for all the sermons, including Carrie's sermon earlier. It was amazing. <laughs> yep. I was getting ready to bring that one up because I'm going to her next. I'm going to say, well, Carrie, that doesn't bother you because you can come up with sermons in less than 20 seconds. But, uh, you know, I can I can certainly feel the, the, the comments already happening about this. It's my hope that uh, that we'll all not just be quick. But I think one of the things that we've imported talking earlier about the things that we've imported is uh, the, the, the primacy of the preached word. Like, where did that come from? How did that happen? I'm not talking about trying to challenge the primacy of the word influencing our lives, but the primacy of that happening through one trained individual. Interesting conversation to consider. So, Carrie, tossing it to you. How, what, what in the world are you guys doing uh, with the different areas you serve, both in the church and in ministry, um, apart from that, to help see this trend come to reality? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of those in the ministry outside of the church with other pastors and leaders is we're creating space to have these kinds of conversations, right? I think almost every pastor I do work with, every denominational leader I do work with, they're wrestling with these questions. And so creating a space to wrestle where it's safe and where we can name some of these things, the tensions around this is one kind of real practical thing in the church space. I mean, I, I lead a large church and it's a big ship to turn, if you will. And so we had a lot of conversations throughout the, the pandemic when things were off and it was a bit of a refining and redefining time. Um, we just, we did go back to the basics in some places to say, how can, what is the actual invitation? And we, you know, read Scott McKnight's King Jesus Gospel, and we identified some of the ways that we have perhaps unintentionally diluted the fullness of the gospel for the sake of salvation. And so really practically, we just did a lot of work around our language, around revisioning our team, our teaching team, people who are writing sermons or who are talking about baptism or communion. Like how do we get rid of some of that cross the line of faith language, or here's mm. the list of do's and don'ts, and how do we move more towards invitational language and the fullness of the gospel? And so we did really intentional work to try to root out some of that language within the church. I think even in my own leadership, I'm trying to lead differently and name when I fall short. Like, I don't want anybody to think that I have got the moralism side of this thing figured out. And so when I'm able to lead out with confession or repentance or not feel like as the leader, I have to have the answers, but ask better questions of my team, like there's significant ways this has impacted our culture. And I would say maybe the third one is even how we define discipleship. We're really trying to look at a more holistic, integrated view of discipleship, right? Like we're talking about mental health and emotional health and physical health and relational health. And, and how do you pursue wholeness to experience the fullness of Christ and the way he meant life to be? And so th that's a, a fully orbed way of looking at discipleship. And that means the starting place is different for people, right? You've got a bunch of baggage and family origin of stuff. Let's get you in counseling before you get into a small group or, you know, it, it changes the path. It's not linear, but we're trying to look at discipleship as fully integrating healing and wholeness in every area of life. I love that. Rob, you talk an awful lot about uh, setting a clear definition and then intentionally using or discarding language in order to help accomplish that. Anything you want to add to that? Well, I mean, for, for the Kansas City Underground, um, you know, for us, everybody 
gets uh, broken in a family and we're only going to get healed in a family. And so we're trying to focus all of our energies on helping um, ordinary people learn how to plant themselves into neighborhoods and networks, be a gospel presence, learn how to plant the gospel and let new extended spiritual families emerge. And in those families, um, that long, slow, um, often chaotic work of joining Jesus in the very deep places of people's lives. I think the, that kind of extended spiritual family allows for the daily discipleship where you get beyond just people's, um, the things they say publicly or what they even think their private beliefs are down to the core things where they've been, mm -hmm. um, the scripts they've gained in their family of origin or from the culture and where the gospel now can go to those deepest needs, um, deepest sense of identity. Um, so as much as, as, as important as it is to, um, for example, develop spiritual disciplines, if I'm still trying to do that in sort of like a solo effort or I'm in a program where I'm trying to execute it, uh, it often still leads to the same moralism. Um, but when we begin to realize like God loves me, even if I don't change. And a lot of times the way we're operating Christianity is actually like the opposite of being saved. I'm still trying to save myself, you know, and I'm never holy enough. I'm never pure enough, never refined enough, loving enough. Whereas when you're falling into God's mercy and you're falling into his great generosity, and it's actually happening in a little micro family environment like that. Suddenly you find the capacity to change. And so that's what we're trying to embody in a really tangible way and help ordinary people realize they can do that. That's it. what it means to be the church. Yeah. So what we, what our heart is, is to equip um, the local church with a part of their discipleship process. And we believe the part of that discipleship process is getting people out of information transfer mode and getting them into environments of grace where they can, um, be known and worthy where they can show up with the worst of themselves and be loved despite all of that stuff. And so our heart is really just to um, equip the local church with a mentoring process that helps them engage the folks in the church with stories to tell that are a little further down the road who don't think they're going to be great Sunday school teachers or they feel not qualified for some of the more traditional things. But man, if you put them around a in a room with a group of six to eight younger guys, they're dying to hear that life experience, to be able to hear where God continues to show up, where their story got off the rails and how God redeemed that and brought them back in and just creating those safe spaces. And so what we know happens is after somebody gets to step into that mentoring process and they come out on the other side, they're so well equipped to lead and they're so well equipped to engage other people in that same kind of an environment. And so we just hand this process to the church for their men and their women and, and just pray that it helps them come become fully alive. Cause we, as we've been talking about this whole time, that's, mm. that's the, the, the key to all of this is to break free of the behavior modification trap and, and lean fully into who God uh, says we are. Yeah. I keep coming to just sharing from my most recent book. So I'm not here purposefully to promote my book, but, but obviously I wrote it because there's something I really love. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and I'm also trying to put this into place in my current 
church as well, because um, so much of what we're talking about is, is because we are steeped in a culture that has really done damage to the human spirit and the wholeness of the being that, that God has made us to be. And um, so there's this, I think, therefore I am kind of thing in our culture that defines us as mostly thinking beings. And there's also an I do, therefore I am kind of thing that's come out of the industrial revolution that defines us as primarily functioning beings. And um, it's funny because when I mention this to people, they say, yes, that's true. We need to think about that more so that we can fix it. And so like, it just shows that we are steeped in this and we need detox from the very culture that we're a part of, which wasn't created to make, you know, to, to make us flourish. And um, it's desperate when we realize that state, but I actually think that when Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. There's, he's onto something. And, and it's surprising how little time we spend talking about that because we think it's just, Oh, you know, skipping in the daisies or whatever, which it totally is partly. But when we were children, we just knew how to be human. We knew how to trust our instincts, to listen to our bodies, to listen to our emotions, as well as our minds. And we didn't wake up every morning thinking the world has begun now that I'm awake. You know, we weren't surprised when we weren't in control of things and when we needed help and we needed to reach beyond ourselves. And so I really love being around kids because they are also our models because they, um, they, they see themselves as whole beings. Like some of the damage that has been done to us is um, that we see ourselves primarily as, as thinking and functioning beings, which is like mm. just this, I think, evil that has been done to us. It has cut off pieces of ourselves. And God is constantly wanting to bombard us with his goodness and his love through, through creation, through our emotions, through our senses, through our relationships. And, and we only are open to receiving him in this very, very limited way. And so that breaks my heart. Um, and so I would just say that I believe the way forward is in um, the kind of thing that we have done before. That's what's really hopeful about this, that as hard as it seems and as strange as it seems for us, we still have to pay the bills. We're still, you know, we still have to do grown up stuff. Um, for us to be as unafraid of our powerlessness as we were when we were children and also as unafraid of our power, that we do have power. We have agency, we have gifts to give and resources to give, but also we can give them best when we have emptied of our effort to be God and to be everything. Um, and I, and so I, I think it's encouraging to remember we have, we've done that before and there was no shame in it before. And I do believe there's a wholeness that can be found, um, when we, when we, uh, open to the ways that God is speaking to us through, through every bird song, through every sunrise, through, through every emotion, through every, uh, relationship, through every experience. And on the road to Emmaus, they walked with him and talked with Jesus all day long and they did not recognize him. And it was when they sat around a meal together, had that social multi-sensory experience that they, their eyes were opened. And then they, they said, it must be true. They say, our, weren't our hearts burning all day long when we were walking with Jesus? They verify it by saying we felt something. And in our culture, often we say, if I felt something, that means it shouldn't be, it's not true. <laughs> you know. So I just love the way that that story tells of a whole person experience that's engaging with Jesus as, as whole beings. And I believe will be healed in that space. Amen. And we are certainly not against 
sharing resources that are meaningful to help us to tap into this. And we will include that resource as well as other resources and links. Uh, you all have been very gracious to provide those. We're gonna put them in the footnotes below. Please check these things out. This isn't about Disciples Made. This isn't about Mandy or Rob or the Underground or Myra and the Hope Dealer. This is about the gospel and seeing Jesus live fully alive in, through, and beyond people. It's a revolution of grace. It's a revolution of that power. Manny, I love how you said that. I've been so afraid of failing that I decided to never try for so long. And uh, it's time to pop that open. And uh, wow, I knew this would be good. I didn't realize this would be this good and this much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to participate. Thank you for being candid in your answers. And I look forward to having you back on future episodes this season. We'll see you all very soon. What a rich conversation that was to be a part of. I've always said when it comes to having a multitude of counselors, like scripture says, it's not a number of people. It's a number of people with different opinions. What wisdom comes out of that? I hope you enjoyed hearing, you know, their priorities as well as how they want and plan on with their ministries to make sure that these shifts happen. It begs the question, how does Disciples Made prioritize this shift? Well, at Disciples Made, we entirely focus our efforts on the outcomes of character and calling. We talked about fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. And character is our word for fruit of the Spirit, as you know, and calling is that masterpiece mission that is fueled highly by the spiritual gifts that we've been given. And we talk about the My Impact Equation throughout, which is a, a an equation that kind of measures the power that comes both personally inside and through us into the world as we touch others through character and calling. So our focus is entirely there. Our H2O is one of our secret sauce ingredients. It's the habit to outcome question that we add to all of our experiences. And it's the H2O that keeps the focus there on those outcomes of character and calling by partnering with the Holy Spirit who's working in and through us to accomplish these outcomes. The H2O keeps us from having our books, be, our experiences become a, a book review or uh, just a personal counseling session. All those are appropriate and they have their place, but they're not a part of actually helping mobilize people at this level. We also support and challenge each other in a Hebrews 10 kind of way in the 3 and 12 type of experiences. The last thing that we do is we support and challenge people to be a part of a triad with regular reflection on journals and evaluations that they're taking on a regular basis in order to measure spiritual progress in those two outcomes. That's how Disciples Made prioritizes the shift. I can't wait to sit down with Rob and Brian and talk about how the conversation we just listened to will affect how we do things going forward. See you in a couple weeks.